Good morning. Uh, it is, as Mike said, a bittersweet morning for us. Um, yeah, to finish up our time here, and just wanted to say quickly, um, how, I remember our worst, our, sorry, our first, <laughs> that didn't come out right, did it? Uh, <laughs> good start. Our first week here, we were, we were driving, um, driving home, and we were just, man, so welcomed and um, so encouraged by the lovely welcome that so many of us, uh, so many of you gave us, and so thank you for that and for the time we've had. Um, so it is bitter to be leaving, um, and, but it's such a good opportunity to be able to speak this passage with you. So let, let me pray for us as we come to this. Father, we pray that you would please give us humility to hear your word, to be ready to hear its rebuke, and ready to embrace its comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. What did you expect... Uh, I don't know if you can cast your mind back to when you first became a Christian. Uh, what did you expect Christian life as God's child? What did you expect that to be like? Uh, maybe as we heard from Dave, you might be new with us this morning even, uh, and you're wanting to know more. What do you expect the Christian life to be like if you do choose to accept that, to come to that? Because expectations can be dangerous. Uh, Al Stewart, I I think he spoke with a lot of us earlier, but in the video we watched a couple of weeks ago, he said that expectations are dangerous because they're just disappointments that haven't arrived yet. And spiritually, life with God, if we have expectations, what happens if they're not met? Because Christian life is hard. Uh, And we might consent to that in theory, we might be able to sing the song, Blessed Be Your Name, even in the hardship, but when we're in those trials, it's really hard to be God's child, and maybe it's not quite what we expected, and we're left disappointed. Is that really what it was supposed to be like? Is this really what it's supposed to be like to be God's love child? I I don't know if you could uh, dream up your next week. Uh, for a moment and just think, what would all the different pieces be that you would fit into it? I imagine it's probably not the last week you just had. And so why would a God who loves us just withhold a good thing from us and give us something that maybe we never really wanted? Well, this part of uh, Exodus is expectations that are not met. It's the beginning of Israel's life as God's people and there's unexpected hardship. This is the story of a disappointed people grumbling with their God. And here's the point that we're going to walk away with. This is the point that this story is telling us. We're to know God, the gracious shepherd who carries his undeserving people home. That's what we're going to see as we go through this. And we're going to see it in two parts. First, we're going to look at the undeserving people and then see Yahweh as the gracious shepherd. So let's set the scene scene though. Uh, You might remember Israel has seen a world superpower being wiped out, completely shattered by Yahweh their God. And Israel, we're told, they saw it and they feared God and they trusted Him. He is the God who's going to fight for us. And last week, they put that truth into poetry we saw. The first song of the Bible is the great celebration of Yahweh's salvation. And it's also a song of trust for their future. 
Uh, just look at your Bibles there, open them up, we'll, we'll be in chapter 15 to start with, but just look at some of these words from last week, verse 13. Verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead up the people you have redeemed. You will do it. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. God, we trust you. Yahweh, you can do everything that you have promised. But so quickly, this high moment of gratitude just quickly hits the wall. Uh, So come to our passages that we have for us this morning. Chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to the place... Uh, when they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why it's called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Three days is a long time. I think we quickly skip over that part for a moment. I actually had to quickly Google how long you can survive without water. And you can probably guess it's actually about three days, which is what we have here. Maybe they had some stored, we, potentially, but the situation is serious. That It is life and death, it seems, before them. And in just five words, they say, what are we to drink? And that seems to be a pretty fair question, I think. But behind it is their confident praise has turned to growing, grumbling doubt. And instead, though, of rebuking them, look at what Yahweh does. He makes the bitter water fit to drink. And then Yahweh speaks to remind them of their song, verse 26, you can see it there. If you just listen to me carefully, to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Trust me, he says. And verse 27, they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there near the water. God provides. The number 12 and the number 70, uh, they're numbers of fullness, but they're also numbers that particularly help Israel because there's 12 tribes, they have a spring each, and maybe the 70 is representative, the 70 elders and perhaps the people they represent. So here God is abundantly providing for His people. So Israel, when things get hard, when you face difficulty, you don't expect Trust your shepherd who cares for you. And so surely now they get it, right? Surely. Well, chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, "'If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt.'" There we sat around pots of meat. I think they forgot a few details about Egypt, by the way. Um, We ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Here we go again, they grumble, but it's not just five words. Do you see the intent they ascribe to Moses and Aaron? You're murderers. You didn't just bring us out here by accident. You brought us out here to starve us. And they point the finger at them, but they've quickly forgotten 
not just slavery, not just their redemption, but they've forgotten their Redeemer. You have brought us out, Moses and Aaron, to kill us. How quickly that song has just become a distant memory. Moses and Aaron, they reply to remind them, verse 7 and 8, they say it twice. Who are we? Stop pretending that you're complaining against us. This is a complaint against Yahweh. You are not grumbling against us, they say, but against the Lord. It was Yahweh. Yahweh, your God, brought you here. And they bring their complaint to their leader, but they're actually hiding an accusation against their God. They've forgotten him. And it gets worse. Despite their accusations, again, the Lord provides them food, graciously providing for an undeserving people. Uh, He says in verse 4, he's going to rain down bread for them. You might remember when Pharaoh dismissed the words of Yahweh, he rained down hail in judgment on Egypt. But when Israel acts like Pharaoh, he rains down gracious blessing. But look at what Yahweh says he's doing. Verse 4, halfway through there, it says, In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The instructions are you've got to collect enough food for each day. I'm going to provide for you food, but you've got to go out each day and collect it. And on the Friday, the day before the Sabbath, collect double so that you can rest on the seventh day. And it's a test. Yahweh's testing them. And he's also teaching them. Verse 6, in the evening, you will know it was Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, not Moses. Verse 7, you will see the glory of the Lord. Verse 8, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. It's a test and it's a lesson. And all of that is part of his invitation. Verse 9, Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord. If you've got the ESV there, it picks up um, what's going on with that word before, but it's come near before the Lord. Will they know? Will they accept the invitation? Because they have keep putting Yahweh at a distance it's almost like it was with Pharaoh when Moses speaks to Pharaoh to uh, Moses speaks to Aaron to speak to Pharaoh. You got the same situation going on here with God and His people. They're moving away, but Yahweh says, "Come and come near to me." And then they see His glory in verse ten in the cloud, and He speaks to Moses, verse twelve: "I'm going to feed these grumblers." Then, verse twelve: "You will know." that I'm the Lord, your God. So will they know? Will they pass the test? Will they learn the lesson? I mean, surely the bar's pretty low. All you've got to do, wake up in the morning and go and get your bread and then come back. That, that seems pretty easy. I'm hungry and you're giving me food. Okay, I can do that. And even better, there's a Sabbath rest. I get, I get to rest on one of those days a week. So let's see how they go. Verse 20, however... Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until the morning. And so Moses was angry, it says. Just enough for each day. Get that much. Test failed. Lesson not learned. And then the Sabbath comes. Surely for people who've been in slavery under a tyrant, working them endlessly, now Yahweh gives them a day of rest. And what do they do? Verse 27, 
they work. Nevertheless, some of them went out on the seventh day to gather it. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's a gift. It's rest. Test failed. Lesson not learned. And though God has drawn them out of Egypt to draw them in as his people, they've not accepted the invitation to come near to him. They resist Yahweh's embrace. And it's shocking. And isn't it so easy to point the finger? Because they're terrible. They just don't learn anything. They don't hear. They don't respond. They've just got it so wrong. And yet this story, it is like staring into the mirror that shows us the horror even of our sin. In one sense, it is just so extraordinary, isn't it? No one gets murdered here. No one's stealing anything. Uh, There's no idol worship yet, anyway. Uh, They're generous with each other, we hear. They share the bread around. But sin's not just about how we treat each other. Sin, as unextraordinary as it may seem, it's nothing less than spiritual adultery. Israel says, Israel's saying that they'd rather serve Egypt than Yahweh. Israel says, I'd rather be a slave to a tyrant than be one of God's people. What does that, all, that say about the God and what he's done to save them? What does it say about their God? He's evil. I'd rather be in Egypt. So what about us? What about our sin? I don't know if this thought has crossed your mind before. I know it's crossed mine, but it's the thought of, gee, wouldn't life just be a bit easier if Matt was still king? Wouldn't it be easier just to not do what God says? I mean, God, why, does, why does God make me do that? And not just what the things I have to do. What about all those things that I, I want to do that now I can't? And why is life so hard? It was easier before. There was pots of meat around and now there's nothing. I was better off without him. Sin says, when we, when we sin, when we give in to temptation, it says, I'd rather belong to the realm of sin. I'd rather be ruled by the tyrant Satan than belong to Yahweh as his person. I p- perhaps, I, I imagine a lot of us at least will know the story of the prodigal son. Uh, it's a horrendous story where the son sells off his father, basically want, just wants his money, doesn't care about him, and goes and spends up his, all his inheritance. He gets it early. And then he returns. But could you imagine if there was a sequel to that story? Because he returns to receive the father's embrace. He's forgiven him. But could you imagine a sequel to that story? He's come back, he's comfortable, he's loving family home, uh, he's met, been met by his good and merciful father, he's enjoying his provision, and though he's acted as though he was dead, now he gets to enjoy the father. But in the sequel, could you imagine the son secretly thinking, gee, I'd rather expend that inheritance again. Deep down, I really want to go back to that life of debauchery, spending it all on my pleasure, instantly gratifying all those desires I had that I could meet. And maybe in Prodigal Son Part 2, the son occasionally does go back to where he'd really actually rather be. Brothers and sisters, our sin is that horrendous. Married to Yahweh, 
but choosing to sleep with Satan. When we sin, we'd say, I'd rather go back. I'd rather serve the desires that spiritually will kill me than serve Jesus who saves me. I'd rather not be saved. That's what we say when we sin. And I think if we face that reality, it's almost impossible to face. Knowing the horror of sin, it's almost impossible to come to grips with it and be honest about it. But we need to. If we're going to know God, the gracious shepherd, we need to know our sin. So here's what Israel do though. They've got this opportunity to see their sin. They failed the test. And so instead of heeding the warning, they turn and test Yahweh. Chapter 17, they decide to do the testing. Chapter 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for them to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. I was like, sometimes you just got to check if you're reading the right chapter. I'm pretty sure we just read that, but it is a different part. Don't you remember the bread you've just been eating every day? Don't you remember those springs he provided just before? Moses replies in almost identical words, but verse 2, look at what he says, it's slightly different. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Israel are going to have none of Moses' rebuke, they'll have none of Yahweh's tests and so they flip the tables. Verse 5, God tells Moses, make a scene now, get all the important people, grab that staff, the symbol of your salvation and whack them over the head. (laughs) No, that's not what he says, look at what he says, verse 6. Take the staff, verse 6, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out for the people to drink. Verse 7, And Moses called that place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, this is what the test is, is the Lord among us or not? These people, they do not deserve a thing, do they? But is the Lord among them? Yes. And he's among them, giving them what they do not deserve. God's gracious shepherding of this undeserving people. Again and again, he provides water, bread, shade, water again, meat. He saves them from the Amalekites who attack them in the next little part of this chapter. In in chapter 18, when uh, Jephro comes, he's like a consultant to help the nation get a bit more organized and look after their people better. God keeps providing, and yet they wish they never knew Him. Look at Moses' response to this people, verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? Bunch of ungrateful, whinging brats. But that's not what Yahweh says. See, our sin is horrendous. We are sinners, and it's horrible but we are His sinners. And that makes a lot of difference. Sinners He's chosen in love. Because it's nothing in us, it's a completely His free choice to make us His. 
We are like Israel, we do not deserve this God. But like Israel, we have the same gracious shepherd who's carrying us home. See, in Jesus, we have been we've been saved from slavery. We've been made into his holy nation. We are God's own people and he's shepherding us to the promised land, to an eternal Sabbath. Right now, every single part of your life is not just a plan that he made and then stepped back from to let happen. It's a plan he made and then he enacts. He is with you every moment. Reminding of you of your salvation, encouraging you to, to continue, strengthening you to kill sin, strengthening you to live like Christ. Every moment of the journey is a moment of his loving, shepherdly care. Is the Lord among us or not? Well, in difficulty, in guilt, your assurance doesn't rest on your performance you can't read his grace through life circumstances and nice feelings if you trust jesus he's with you he won't leave you because that's the kind of god that he is it's not about who the people we are you can have confidence and trust in his fatherly provision and care every day because you are his Israel is just like us in that sense because we have the same gracious shepherd, but there is a difference. Uh, uh, One of the significant differences, actually, there's probably a few, but between Israel and us, someone else has walked this wilderness journey. So you get hints all the way through this passage, um, not just of Israel's failures, but also of Moses' weaknesses. The end of chapter 15 we read um, before, if you look back on it, every time it says you, verse kind of 25 through to 26 there, it's always singular, it's always you, Moses, you, Moses, you need to learn something here. But every other time, uh, later on, it's you, Israel, it's a plural you, so you can tell the difference. Um, And every other time, it's addressed to Israel, but so from the get-go, we're getting a glimpse that one of the things we're supposed to learn right now is, what's Moses doing? And so what do we see about him in this passage? Well, he's unable to deal with grumbling people. They never actually listen to his words. He can't change them. And he's pretty sick of them, really. And in the bits that we didn't have time to look at closely, the Amorites come and attack. And all he has to do is hold up the staff. Because he's too old. He can't fight the Amorites himself. It's his young successor, Joshua, that needs to do the fighting. And he just has to hold up the staff, but he's too weak to do that. He needs a lot of help to do it. And when um, his father-in-law arrives in chapter 18, uh, he says, Moses, you're crazy. What are you doing? You can't keep judging the people like this. You can't possibly bear this load. Moses, you're too weak. You need a different way of doing this. And all of it says, God's people need a better leader. And in his grace... God, our shepherd, has provided the great shepherd. Between us and Israel, someone else has walked this journey for us. And so Matthew's gospel shows us this. Um, Feel free to flick to Matthew 2, but it's going to come up on the screens as well if you want to read it from there. But in chapter 2, Matthew takes this verse from Hosea, which is clearly talking about Israel, but he applies it to Jesus. Because Jesus leaves Israel as a child and he says, 
Matthew says, the prophet is fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Not Israel, the son, but Jesus, the son. And the tragedy of Hosea, the next verse says, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. And isn't that what we've seen in Exodus? And that's what we're going to continue to see. But that's not Jesus' story. See, the next chapter, he's baptized in the water. And then he's led into the wilderness for 40 days, just like the 40 years that Israel had. And he's hungry and he's tested. But when the devil tempts him, he even tries to make him test God, but he doesn't fail. Instead, he says in the words of Deuteronomy 8, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the God, from the mouth of God. Jesus He lives the wilderness journey and he passes the test. See, if you're in Christ, if you trust in him, it's not just that he's taken your sin on him. He has done that. But more than that, he has given you his perfect wilderness journey, his whole life of perfect obedience to the Father. That is yours. And God, the gracious shepherd, has provided that for you if you trust him. Jesus is the new Israel who didn't fail. And he's the better Moses because he's not, just, um, he's not just there as the leader giving the words of God, which he is, but more than that, he can deal with their problems and he represents them perfectly. He gives us his perfect record. Moses couldn't do that for Israel. God is so loving and he doesn't even withhold his very own son for us. He's done everything. Everything we need to be close to Him, even bringing us there. Which raises a question, I think, for us to answer. It's the question we had at the start of this passage. Why does God test them? Because if God loves us so much, why put them through all that? Why is Christian life not as I expected? Why is it hard? Why disappoint the expectations? Why not just give them the water straight away and the meat straight away? Well, God tells us why. And it's the reason that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8. Because why does the gracious shepherd test his people? We'll read this together. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness to humble humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Testing, discipline, hardship... It's God's invitation for us to humbly depend and love His shepherding care. This passage, it's um, reflected on in Hebrews 12, which we read earlier, and it puts it in these words, which will come on the screen as well. God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God tests us, disciplines us for our good. 
But you've got to see that his definition of good is the right one. And our definition might be different, but it's because it's short change compared to his offer. Because we get to share in his holiness. It, it produces righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. And so perhaps today we need to convert our expectations. We need a conversion of our idea of good to accept God's idea. See, our hardship reminds us that we need someone else for the journey. We need someone else's perfect record. We need our Father to provide for us, to make it to the end. We need Him to carry us as a Father carries His Son. And God has provided that leader. And so in every discipline, we know that the Father has given us everything we need to get us home. Every moment, our daily bread. Yes, we can't, that bread, it comes from when we work, yeah? Uh, you go to Coles or whatever you do to get it, but it's come from the provident Word of God. It's all from Him. Depending on God is part of knowing Him as the gracious shepherd. In His kindness... He will allow us to suffer because He has something far better for you than comfort. God's testing is an invitation to know Him better. The journey of the Christian life really has just one goal. Know your God. And what a God to know. A gracious shepherd who carries undeserving people home. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you don't just simply give us um, what our hearts flippantly desire, but what is truly good you give us. Father, we pray that you would change our hearts to desire what you promise, to long to be like Jesus and to long to know you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.